0: So it looks like we're ready. Um, I was just thinking about, do you know why many of us are insecure about making decisions? And we tend to back away from making decisions uh, that God prompts us to make. One of the reasons that I was thinking of is, we're reluctant to make the decisions because we're afraid of the consequences of those decisions. When God speaks to us and tells us that we have something that we should be doing, we don't feel secure because our uh, trust in God can sometimes wane, and we think about, or we think more about the potential uh, discomfort than we do about. Obeying him. Many of us have probably seen the nineteen eighty one movie Chariots of Fire, and the movie really focuses on important decisions and their consequences. The main character, Eric Lytle, was a Scottish Presbyterian minister who believed that Sunday was the Lord's Day and therefore should be kept sacred. And Eric Lytle was also a, a brilliant athlete and he qualified to compete in the nineteen twenty four Olympics. For years he had his heart set on running in the Games. He practiced and he and he built his body up and he knew that he had a really, really good chance of winning the coveted gold medal for his country. Of England. But Eric was surprised when he got got off the ship and it docked at a harbor at the Seine River in Paris. For the first time in history, some of the Olympic events, some of the qualifying heats were scheduled on Sunday, including the one that Eric was to be competing in. So he was forced to choose between a potential medal and his principle. Eric decided to come down on the side of faith and God and his word. And in one of the movie's most decisive scenes, Harold Abrams, a Jewish athlete friend, asked Eric, Do you have any regrets? Eric responded, regrets, yes. Doubts, no. Eric later died on the mission field in China, secure and trusting the Lord. He trusted in making decisions that were God-focused. You know, there are many people who identify themselves with any number of religious organizations and denominations and churches or movements. But there are comparatively few people who are so clearly identified with the cross of Christ that they are willing to bear the marks of persecution because of their identification with Christ. Paul's argument through this entire letter of Galatians has been, that keeping religious rules, even rules requiring physical marking, were not a proof of salvation. Proof of a regenerate heart is the rejection and the avoidance and sometimes persecution that a person receives in the world who rejects the cross of Christ. You see, it's important to truly identify with Christ And not to be treated in some, uh, and not to be treated in some measure as he was. And this matter was so dear to the Apostle Paul that he wrote this letter to the Galatian churches. And it says near the end that he wrote and signed off in his own hand. He stated it was because we identify this, uh, with the cross of Christ. We therefore consider the desires of the flesh to have been killed with Christ. And this allows us to live a life wholly dependent upon His power and grace. We don't do good works in the world because we long to have praise of all those people around us. We don't attempt to gain the things of this world in order to have all of our pleasures satisfied. We don't govern our ministry for the Lord in a way that will please the world and gain the world's attention and approval. I guess really we don't care whether the world approves of us or not. But modern psychology believes that if you attempt to repress your natural desires you will actually start to damage your self-esteem. And if that happens, it's just proof that uh, something has gone haywire in your mental faculties. Of course, our hedonistic, narcissistic culture of crime and chaos proves how right the psychologists have been for the past three generations. But here's the shocker. As Christians, we boast in the cross of Christ being identified with it. And we are crucified in relationship to the world, and the world is crucified in relation to us. At the same time, the cross is a source of new creation. This is the wonderful news for us. It's not all about us. It's not all about our struggles, our pains, our sorrows. It's all about Christ and Him crucified The world can't understand that. They can't absorb the meaning of it. They think we are fools for following one. They think that we have lost our minds. They can't get over the fact that we look to someone else for our worth and our value The world says that you are owed everything. You are owed a good and peaceful life. A life with great pleasures. But the Christian says, no. We're nothing. We actually deserve eternal punishment. Martin Luther said, I am nothing but a filthy, stinking bag of worms. And that has been echoed by others when they say, I myself am nothing because my value as a person comes through the work of Christ on the cross. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. I don't need to find value in the created. I need to find value that comes from the Creator. Our value comes from an object of shame and grace. Our value comes from that old rugged cross. We don't worship the cross. We value what was accomplished on it by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what we are. This is where we find everything we long for. And so let's go ahead and turn to our text for this morning and see what Paul says about this. Our text is found in the last chapter, chapter 6 of Galatians. And we'll be looking at the final verses, verses 16 through 18. Starting with verse 16. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. You see, the cross of Christ not only caused Paul to die to the world and the world to Paul, but now he's separated from a religious system that has entered into a, and has entered into a relationship with God. You see, it's not the system, it's the relationship. All of life is about a relationship. Don't forget it. When you are working, you work as to, unto the Lord. But it's that relationship that you have. The relationship that we have with God the Father. It's a relationship that we have with Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. It's the relationships that we have in our family in honoring our mother and our father. It's a relationship that we have with our siblings. It's a relationship that we have with every single person we come about. We can't forget that. So many people put on blinders and they forget to bear the marks of the cross. It's so easy to get caught up in all these external trappings of religion. But Paul says that in reality, what counts is a new identity produced by our spiritual birth. Christ died that we might live through Him and for Him. And that we might live in Him. Christ died that we might live and share in a new relationship with Him, no longer controlled by our sinful nature. We are free, no longer under a religious system of legalistic rules and rituals. We are free, no longer looking at life the way that we used to look at it. What counts is God changed us from the inside out. It wasn't because we did all this stuff that we changed. It's that He changed me and then I do those things. Like it said, works are not the root. Faith and grace are the root and works are the fruit. It's not about you turning over a new leaf. It's not about you getting your act together. It's something that He does in us. And it's experienced to the fullness as we surrender and yield ourselves to Him. How people don't understand that. Oh, I'm saved. Do whatever I want. No! You will never know the fullness of Him and live to His glory here. It is easy in heaven because we will be glorified. We will no longer be able to sin and we will glorify Him. But here, we can have this, this precious opportunity to live our lives to glorify Him when it's tough, when it's hard. All to His glory. We need to yield ourselves to Him. And this will show that our old nature is no longer there. It no longer has that death grip on us. Instead, God has given us a new heart and a new uh, new purpose and a new passion. We are now new creatures in Christ. And we walk with that understanding, an understanding of our new identity And that's why Paul says in verse 16 of our text, as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Those who walk according to this rule, what rule is he talking about? Well, it's an interesting word that pops up here. The word rule, you've probably heard many times. It's canon or canon. You've heard it's in the canon of Scripture. If you've been around Christianity enough, you've heard that word referring to the Bible. This is generally described as the collection of books which form the original and authoritative written rule of faith and practice of the Christian church. The word canon in classical Greek Actually means a straight rod. And in the wildest sense, it's the, uh, rule of the church, the rule of faith, the rule of truth. And this was first applied to Scripture apart from what we see Paul saying by, uh, Amphilochus in 380 AD where the word where the word indicates the rule by which the contents of scripture must be determined and therefore secondarily an index of the the constituent books you see the uncanonical books that were around and still are around are simply those without, meaning without the inspiration of God. They are uncanonized. But the ones that were canonical are called the books of the Testament. And it's important to understand that the writing of Scripture were canonical at the moment the pen touched the parchment. And this is important because Christianity does not start by defining God or Jesus Christ or salvation. The basis of Christianity is found in the authority of Scripture. If we cannot identify what Scripture is, then we cannot properly distinguish any theological truth from error. What measure or standard is used for doing this. How did they know what was scripture? Well, a key verse to understanding this pro- this process is really sort of given in Jude three, where it states uh, that the Christian's faith was once for all entrusted to the saints. Our faith is defined by scripture. And Jude is essentially saying that Scripture was given once and for all for the benefit of us. And so it's important for us to understand that there is no hidden or lost manuscripts yet to be found that are Scripture. They are all in the Bible right now. There are no secret books. No select few that we have to find. No one alive that you have to go and, and seek. Climb the Himalayan mountain to talk to in order to get special revelation of enlightenment. We have it in Scripture. And we can be confident that God has not left us without witness. The same supernatural power God used to produce His Word, He also used to preserve His Word. The Bible claims that Jesus is God, and yet there's many extra-biblical texts claiming to be Scripture, arguing that Jesus is not God. When clear contradictions exist, the established Bible is to be trusted, leaving all the others outside of Scripture. The Apostle Paul actually wrote four letters to the, uh, to the Corinthians, but only two are inspired. There are other books that we can use as reference, but understanding that as we do that, they are not inspired word and therefore they are not authoritative they might give us some insight some to uh culture to whatever but they are not inspired and they should not be held up as so and so it's important it's an important theological point that we can't miss that God has used His Word for millennia, for one purpose, to reveal Himself and to communicate to mankind. Ultimately, the church councils did not decide if a book was Scripture. That was decided when the human author was chosen by God to write it. In order to accomplish the end result, including the preservation of his word through the centuries, God guided the early church councils in their recognition of the canon, of the straight, narrow rule. And so, Paul uses this word in verse 16 of our text. What is he talking about? The rule of grace. Well, the rule that boasts in the grace of God, found in Jesus Christ, and a rule of life that does not try to govern by circumcision or non-circumcision. In other words, the rule of life is living life free in the grace of God. The one who governs his life by this rule will enjoy peace of God, will enjoy the mercy of God, this will also be true for israel if they would trust in christ and stop trusting in themselves they too would experience the god's grace once you trust in christ and walk by faith not by rules or laws you tend you will find yourself continuing to walk in the light of scripture and the Holy Spirit who guides us. At that point, God's peace and mercy will be upon you. This rule that Paul mentioned here is God's standard for eternal life, standard for new creation. It's never achieved through human wisdom or efforts. It's achieved by faith through grace or or by grace through faith. That kind of change, God's miraculous change, results in a life that seeks to live out the law of Christ. So many people say we are no longer under the law. We aren't. We will not be judged according to the law. But Christ came to fulfill that law perfectly. And because he did that, we can obey the law. And we do that for the love of our Savior, of God. In verse 2 of Galatians 6, it says, And so fulfill the law of Christ. That's where you don't do it, thinking you're earning favor. You do it for love. You do it out of love for God, obedience to God. Christians in the Galatian church who embrace the error of trying to force God to justify them through their works will never know peace and mercy. We can never do enough to assuage even our own Consciences much less cover the offense of our sin before God. Peace and mercy comes from resting securely in the work that Christ has already done for us. It was for Gentiles who trust in Christ alone. It was for people of Israel of God who trust in Christ alone. And so in verse 17 of our text it says, Now, uh, from now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul says, From now on, let no one trouble me. I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. If you would please turn to Uh, Philippians chapter 3 and verses 4 through 6, we'll see how Paul was actually proud of what he was doing. Philippians chapter 3. You see, there was a time when when Paul was proud about his heritage, everything that he did. And here in in uh, Philippians 3, verse 4, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so, circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of ben- Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But you see, after he became a Christian, he became a marked man in a different way. He now glorified, was glorified in the scars that he had received, in the suffering that he endured for the service of Christ. The contrast with the legalists, was plain to see here. Paul states the legalists want you to mark your flesh and brag about you. But I bear on my body the marks of Christ. Paul is proclaiming that he suffered for Christ's sake. He suffered for preaching the gospel of grace and the cross of Christ. If you'd please turn to Second Corinthians chapter eleven, and we'll look at verses twenty-three through thirty-three, or twenty-two through thirty-three. Second Corinthians chapter eleven, and I'm so glad. I want to just say this: I am so glad we're a Bible-believing church that we bring our Bibles and we actually open them up. I love that. So starting with verse 22. Are they Hebrews? Hebrews, So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors more abundant in stripes above measure in prisons more frequently in deaths often from the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one three times I was beaten with rods once I was stoned three times I was shipwrecked a night and a day I have been in the deep in journeys often in perils of waters in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fasting often, in cold and nakedness Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily? Oh, did you hear all of that? What comes upon me daily? My deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not. Who is made to stumble? And I do not burn with indignation? If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under Artus, the king, was guarding the city. And Damasus, with a garrison, desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in a wall and escaped from his hands. You see, Paul expected the people who were preached he who he preached to would defend him. There is a place for defending a true gospel preacher. Paul expected these Galatians to back him and support him and defend him. Because there's a place for standing up for grace and the person who teaches grace. Paul carried the literal scar marks on his body. This was a man who was beaten up for the gospel. Every attack Paul suffered, he suffered because of his teaching and preaching about the grace of God. And so he expected people in the church where he had ministered to them to defend Him. The word Paul uses for marks where he says, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Greek word stigmata. It's where we get our English word stigma. It's a mark associated with disgrace and public disapproval. This was well known because in Ancient oriental usage, slaves and soldiers bore the name or the stamp of their master or commander branded or cut into their bodies to indicate what masters or generals they belonged to. And then there were even some devotees who stamped themselves in this way with the token of their gods Paul is bruised. He has lacerations and scars and he gained them because he stood up for Christ. Paul lived with these marks and he said that identified him as a true Christian who had evidence of his suffering for Christ. That's why he said all should walk by this rule there is a certain lifestyle for Christians. And note, Paul does not say, peace and mercy on you, Galatians. He says, peace and mercy on all who walk by this rule. Paul says even to the Israel of God, That's because there were those who were in Israel who were not truly Israelites. They did not believe in Jesus as the Son of God or the Messiah. But there were also those who did believe in Jesus. You see, there's such a thing as being numbered with the righteous and yet not being righteous. Not covered In Christ's righteousness, we can belong and be among people of God and not be a true believer. We can be under the Word of God and yet not truly one of God's Word or God's people. Romans 9-6 says, For not all who are descendant from Israel belong to Israel. You see, there is a true Israel of God and then there is an Israel of the flesh. And so Paul doesn't hesitate to declare to them the whole counsel of God, every profitable truth and doctrine that he knew that would make them strong and build them up. He held nothing back. And so he, they needed to be faithful to the truth which he had delivered to them. This is the same approach that Paul used to the elders in Ephesus. He now uses in Galatia. He says, "Let no one trouble me anymore or from now on, because I've clearly set forth the truth to you. Don't trouble me by listening to by not listening to me or by failing to believe or act upon the truth that you've heard." the truth that I've delivered to you. That's what he means, troubled. When he preaches the truth and you walk out and you live like the devil, that troubles a pastor. That should trouble all of us. We don't live a certain way to try to gain something. We live a certain way because we have the marks of our Savior. We should learn from this. It's troublesome to be a faithful pastor of a flock who fails to receive and act upon the word that they've heard. It's troubling to a pastor's heart and mind, the one who prays for them and wants the best for them spiritually. That's why Paul says in Acts 20.31, Remember that for three years I didn't cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. It's important that they not listen to false teachers or believe false doctrine. It was important enough that Paul cried over them to warn them. And it's the same with any church church. Even this church. It's important to see how needful it is to be sound in faith. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 16, verses 17 and 19. He says, Now I urge you, brethren, know those who cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. For those who... Are such do not deserve, or do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly by smooth words and flattering speech, deceiving the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. This was the desire of Paul. That should be the desire of every pastor. That's my desire for you folks. The doctrine that we learned together over the past 14 years here at Providence Bible Church comes directly from Scripture. And there will be many people outside the church who will try to make you believe that doctrine is not important but it's actually the highest importance. It's what you believe about God, why you believe about Him, and, and what you believe. It's just putting it all together. So many people go, I love Jesus. What Jesus? Who was He and what did He do? Because you can believe a Jesus that was just a nice guy who walked the face of this earth just to teach us how to live a good life. That's not what he did! He ended up coming to pay a sacrifice for you and me on the cross and shed his blood that we can stand righteous before God. So it's important that Jesus of the Bible That's what we believe. And we believe that we need to be living a life to glorify God. And that in believing truth, we do so. And living out truth, we do so. That's why this church is significant in this community. And also in the communities of the people that come from outside. That's what we represent Collectively and individually. We are teaching the full counsel of God and trying by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to live out that truth in such a way that we worship God here on earth and we do so by the way that we live our lives. It's only trouble when some person says they're a Christian and says doctrine doesn't matter theology doesn't matter. We will all stand before God and give answer to what we have or have not presented before people. When you think that presenting the gospel is just to bring them into a new way of life. I had a guy sitting in my office once and he says, yeah, I'm a believer. I go, excellent. He goes, yep. He delivered me from drinking. Great. But then he starts telling me, I cuss like a sailor. I look at women lustfully. I do this and I do it. But that doesn't matter. He stopped me from drinking. Your drinking wasn't the problem. Your heart is. You need to have a new heart. And you therefore need to see yourself in light of him. And if all we do is go out and say, hey, I hope that we can clean up so-and-so and we can do this or do that, and then they're all good, we have the wrong message. And then there's that fact that we go, it's up to someone else. It's up to Pastor Brendan. He'll go out and he'll witness to people. He'll give them the charge. He'll talk to someone if they're denying the truth. If you would please turn to Acts chapter 20 and verses 25 through 31. Acts chapter 20, starting with verse 25. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more, Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Remember that phrase. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Not taking just little bits and pieces, not those little pretty things and leaving out the the bad things. Not saying I will never preach hell or sin or I'll just give you all the good stuff and then... No, he says, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from Among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everybody night and day with tears. Where did Paul get this charge? Through the Holy Spirit, right? That's obvious. But Paul also knew his Old Testament. He knew that charge came from the inspired word of God. He knew that he had impending danger that was going to come uh, upon the flock. He knew Ezekiel 33. If you would please turn to Ezekiel chapter 33 and verses 1-6. 1 through 6. Ezekiel 33, starting with verse 1. And I think this is absolutely fascinating. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, When I bring the sword upon the land, and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman, when he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head." He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. Now here's the kicker. But he who takes warning will save his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. Remember what I said? Remember this phrase? Therefore I testify to you this day, I am innocent of all blood of all men. This is the basis for Paul bearing the marks of the Lord in his body. It was Jesus' showing him just how much he would have to suffer for his name's sake. And we do not need to be afraid to suffer, if need be, for the sake of Christ. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, For if we suffer or endure, we shall also reign with him. He Himself will lead us into it and show us very practically what it is that He would have us endure, how much it is that we need to endure, and how much we will need to suffer for Him. It will be related to our identifying with Him fully in His suffering. And so, in verse 18 of our text, We read, Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. What exactly is grace? We've often heard that it's unmerited favor. But I think it goes deeper than that. I think that guts what grace really truly is. Grace is ill merited favor. We're not neutral before God. We don't sit on a neutral plane. We are actually enemies of Him. We are actually against Him. And so we deserve punishment in hell. And so it's not just unmerited favor, it's ill merited favor. That's why the gospel is so great. Because of the grace of God, He shows us favor based upon what Christ has done for us as sinners. That favor is shown to us from the moment we first believe the gospel and trust in Christ, repent of our sins. From that moment, we are justified completely in God's sight. We are then declared righteous, and that righteousness will cover us and cause us to be seen as completely righteous and acceptable in god 's sight based on christ's righteousness being imputed to us, His righteousness, which was worked out on our behalf while he still worked walked on this earth, and he did god 's will perfectly, something that we're called to do, but we can't. there's no way. Actually, the people that say that you can are Plagian. Plagius thought that a person—it was possible, maybe rare—but a possi- possible that a person could live their entire life without sinning. Here's the problem. Arminius took up part of that. You might know the term Arminian, where Arminius said, "We're." Semi-plagian. That what we can do, we can't live a sinless life, but it's up to us to decide not to. You see the problem? Salvation, yours and mine, is dependent on God, not us. We don't have the ability to choose because we are dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. We are deaf and dumb. We don't have the eyes to see and the ears to hear until God, in His grace, gives us a new heart, opens our eyes, opens our ears. We hear the gospel, and then what do we do? Do we decide where we sing? I have decided to follow. We do at that point, but it's in re, it's just in response to what he has done in our heart. He has given us a new heart and therefore we respond because we are a new creation in him. We deserve death because we are guilty. We are guilty because of Adam's sin that was imputed to us and because of our own sin that we have sinned we don't pay for adam's sin by the way we were we were changed in our nature because of what adam did At the moment, Adam sinned. All of creation became defiled. He was disobedient. He took the fruit and ate it. People go, well, he ate the fruit. No, he was disobedient. God said, I'm going to show you how wicked you can be by giving you that ability. And God did that so he could show how gracious and how loving he is. He allowed man to fall. He didn't make him. He just let him be a creature. He just set that creature. We can always look to the angels in heaven And say there are those that are called elect angels and then there's the ones that fell. Made exactly the same in creation. But these God holds as holy by his grace. These he allowed to be creatures. A creature cannot maintain holiness. Only God can. Actually Christ says, Sanctify them, Lord. I sanctify myself. He could do that because he's truly God. That's another reason. You go, he has to be God in order to sanctify himself. We cannot be sanctified apart from God. And so he let those angels fall in their creatureness. It's really sort of the, the second law of thermodynamics where everything degrades God is the only thing that doesn't. The only one that doesn't. And so he put man on that same platform. You know what? I'm not going to make them sin. I'm just going to let them be creatures. The ability to live. But as they did, they couldn't maintain holiness because God wasn't maintaining that holiness. And they fell into sin. And he did that. So that He could redeem. So that He could end up sending His Son to pay that sacrifice and show what a loving, graceful, and merciful God He is. And so we have that the gene of Adam. We have the ability to, to sin. And we have that corruption Within our bodies from birth. Sort of reminds me, you know, and, and I, I was, I've preached recently about Adam being our federal head, that because he did that, everyone down the line has that same corruption that is now within them and their spirit is now dead. You know that uh, Kaylee McEnany, she's the speaker for the White House. I don't know if you're familiar with her much, but she actually, uh, she's fairly young, she had a double mastectomy because her family, from way back, all the women, some of the women in her family have died of breast cancer. And so to be preemptive, she ended up having a double mastectomy. Her mother didn't cause her to have cancer her grandmother didn't cause they carried that and they carried it and it passed along it wasn't because she wasn't paying for her mother's cancer or her grandmother's cancer she had that passed along in the genes. We have that same thing in Adam and so God says I want to send one who is going to perform all the righteous acts you can't. I'm going to send the one who can be obedient to my word every jot and tittle. I'm going to send the one who will perform the most righteous act of obedience. Remember Adam ate the fruit and was disobedient? Christ ended up saying, Not my will, but yours be done. Total obedience all the way to death on the cross. That was the culmination of all his righteous obedience. And when he did that, we received the imputed righteousness of Christ. It's not something we did. It is imputed or credited to our account. I often mention something like when you someone says, "Oh, whose house is that?" Well, that's Brendan's house. I'll tell you what the bank owns more of it than I do. You know, so but it's it's a, a, it's credited to my account, and so Christ's righteousness is credited to your account. He was the substitute. He was the propitiation of God. He bore the wrath that you deserve. It's sort of hard after hearing all of that to think that you could go out and live any other way than for the glory of God in Christ. Right? To sit there and go, oh my goodness if I want to be known as a good husband, I'm going to treat my wife well. Otherwise, people will see right through it, right? We are justified because grace is imputed to us. And Romans 5.18 says, the free gift came to all men resulting in justification of life. and we are to be we are justified but we need to be sanctified being made holy in this this flesh to where that is being more and more conformed to the image of Christ so that we bear that image before others if you are truly a believer you'll be sincere about walking before the Lord without offense to Him or to any people around you. You will desire to be filled with the fruit of righteousness, which is by Christ. You will be overwhelmed with the the honor you have of bringing glory to God and praise to God by how you live. And you will know that as the Bible says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, this not a work of yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works so that anyone can boast. You will know that. You will understand your righteousness is not yours. Titus 3 5 says, not because of the righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. I often wonder about these churches that try to promote Christ in in a different way, come up with a new formula, make salvation marketable. Salvation can't be marketable because those scars that we will bear can't be marketed. We need to proclaim the truth and believe that we must be set free through Christ. That might sound too easy. But in order to come to a right relationship with God, you simply need faith. You don't need to add works to your your salvation. You can't add works to your salvation. And so Paul ends this by saying, believe in Christ alone and you will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the cross provides salvation for all who would believe The only condition is faith. We pray that those who are here would know that. And if they don't, that they would not leave today without coming to the cross of Christ. That they would understand there is no one who can glory in human effort. No one should think himself good enough to enter heaven on his own conditions. Because you have told us in your word, that it is an act of faith and that we must receive Christ into our lives as our Lord and our Savior, that we must repent of our sin and that we must turn from the religion of human achievement to the one of divine accomplishment and that is to your glory. I pray this in Christ's precious, precious name. Amen.